Morning, Christ Church. All right, today we're in Revelation, and there are witnesses with fire coming out of their mouth. There's a beast coming up from the ocean. We have left the safety of the letters of, to, to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we are set sail into the scary parts of Revelation. And I'm wondering uh, this morning, is my decision back in July to go through the book of Revelation really still the best thing for the church? We have a tall order before us, um, but we have been to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which as you'll recall, you have seen the center of Revelation. Uh, it is a slain lamb seated on the throne, ruling uh, all of the cosmos. That is the center. Everything else in Revelation gets interpreted in that light. So we're going to continue our series in Revelation today. And um, a couple of reminders as we get into our passage this morning, especially if you're visiting with us and thinking, oh my goodness, I stepped in on the Revelation series. What, what do I have in store for me? Here's a couple of reminders of how we're going through Revelation. First of all, we are going scene by scene, not verse by verse. And the reason we're going scene by scene, not verse by verse, is because I want us to catch the big picture of Revelation. I want us to see kind of the high picture of what's going on in Revelation. The second reason is um, it just from a position of humility. I do not know everything going on in Revelation, and I, I work real hard. I read the commentaries. I study the scripture. In fact, this week, coming into this sermon, I had 30 complete typed pages of notes to prepare the sermon today. Um, so we're going to try and keep it under an hour uh, of, of the sermon, and I think we'll get there. But, um, but in humility, if we, when you go verse by verse, you have to say exactly what everything means. And I just don't even think that's possible. I don't think any preacher, any pastor, any scholar, any Christian can say with 100% certainty what everything is in Revelation. So we're going to stay scene by scene, big picture by big picture. Secondly, Revelation, remember this, Revelation is pastoral. It is written by a pastor to his people. John is exiled on the island of Patmos, and he's writing back to his people who are going through, uh, each of them, different levels of difficulty. It's written by a pastor to his people, and it is being interpreted by a pastor to a congregation. So every time I go through a sermon in Revelation, I always want to make sure we get to the end and we say, so what? So what does this mean for us today? And I think there's good news in Revelation, including in our passage today, for us, this congregation of Christ's church. And then thirdly, I want to say again, Revelation is symbolic. And as I read and study Revelation, I don't think that most of the time Revelation is talking about a future literal one-for-one one event. You know, we're, I don't think we're meant to be Sherlock Holmes with newspapers on the wall and red strings trying to tie together revelation with world events. Rather, John is dipping his pen in the inkwell of the Old Testament, and he is artistically and poetically writing, what does Jesus look like? And what does it mean to follow him in this world, this world that is broken and messed up and hard to follow him in? Okay, Introduction done. We got through that. Um, let, me, let me give you a recap. 
and uh, of where we've been uh, most recently because we just jumped quite a bit from chapter 7 to uh, into chapter 11. You know, my family's been watching um, some of these Star Wars spinoff shows on Disney. I don't know anyone watching Mandalorian or um, the Obi-Wan or Boba Fett. Okay, they're really, really good. I see some nervous hands going up. They should be proud hands that you're watching these. Here's what's so good about these shows. In addition to the writing, what's so good about the show is at the very beginning, it gives you this flyby recap because each episode, there's like multiple plot lines. And it just gives you this recap, like if you missed everything, just pay attention to these details and then you can watch the episode today. Let me give you this flyby recap of the last five chapters of Revelation because it'll catch us up. We left the lamb at the center of the throne who's holding this scroll. Do you remember this scroll? It's God's plan for how his kingdom is going to come to this broken world. We left that lamb in chapter 5. Then we go to chapter 6 and seals on that scroll are beginning to be opened. So the first seal is a white horse that means there's going to be wars. And the second seal, a red horse that means there's violence in the world. Third horse is a horse that means there's going to be poverty. And the fourth horse means that there's death and there's sickness and there's plague. In other words, as these first four seals are opened, it's pretty much an average day in human history. We see these things happening every single day. I mean, just think about it. Whether it's the Great Depression whether it's Y2K, whether it's war in Russia, Ukraine, bubonic plague in medieval Europe, or the Austin housing market. Look in, (laughs) we hear the inflation. There's, There's poverty there. You can look at any civilization at any moment in history, and you will see these four repeating patterns. It's as if what John is saying is to live in a broken world, here is the pattern of what sin does. Here's what happens when humans... uh, drink sin into their souls, and then spew it out into the world. Here's what it looks like. It gives this picture of this. Then there's this fifth seal. We get these martyrs, these Christian martyrs asking, God, how long do we have to endure this broken world? Like, when are you going to come back and do something about it? And then a sixth seal is not the Christians, but it's the rest of humanity not wanting the Lamb not wanting to be touched by the love of the lamb, asking him to flee away from them. And all of a sudden, we're interrupted. You Just when you think, all right, we're going to open the seventh seal, and we're finally going to get to understand what is written in this scroll, just before that moment, there's this, like, interruption. And all of a sudden, we hear a picture, or we see a a picture of the church. John hears, he hears about these 144,000 in the Old Testament. This is a military number that you would get in the book of uh, Numbers or the the book of Joshua or Chronicles, a military stylistic number. How many warriors do we have to go and fight for us? Look over there. We have 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. John hears this number, but then he turns and he looks, and he doesn't see 144 Jewish warriors. He sees a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, language, people, and tribe. So he sees people, Jews and Gentiles from all nations, much more, the the whole, like a vast array of people is there. And they don't have swords or spears. Rather, they're conquering as they follow the slain lamb, these acts of mercy and kindness, self-giving love. We get the seventh seal then, and there's silence in heaven as the day of the Lord comes. Then after these seven seals, John is going to repeat this pattern and he's going to say, wait a minute, let me just, let me show you the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. We're going to get these seven trumpets. And this series of seven, it's looking at the same thing, the brokenness of the world and what, is, what God is going to do about it. And 
to be, here's, here's a difficult thing. These are not linear events. It's not like the seven seals happen and then the seven trumpets and later on the seven bowls. Rather think of it like this. You're in the middle of a thunderstorm and you're going to say, this is what it sounds like. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. You're going to describe the same thing, the same reality, three different ways from three different angles. That's what's happening right here. So here's the second description, these seven trumpets of a broken world. These, um, oh, yes, I'll, I'll go on. I skipped something in my notes. I had a lot of notes written out. I'm going to note to self, skip that part. Okay. <clears throat> seven trumpets. The first five trumpets, if you read them, they basically replay the Exodus plagues. You remember the, the plagues in Exodus um, and instead of just going on the Egyptians, these are reimagined judgments on all humanity. So we see these plagues revisited on all humanity. Sixth trumpet, it's the return of the four horsemen. We get them back again as they are released on the scene. And the trumpets, of course, they're answering this question, is God going to do anything about evil? I mean, that's a question you wrestle with every single day. Like, God, the world looks like it's messed up, and it is. Are you going to do something about it? And my life feels like it's falling apart, and are you going to do something about it? And the trumpets are saying, yes, he will. There is something God is going to do. There's a way he's going to respond. He'll judge evil, just like he did in Egypt with the plagues. God will judge evil in the world, the evil in the world, the evil in our hearts. He, the trumpets promise he will judge that. But do you remember in the Exodus story, how does Pharaoh respond consistently when all the plagues come down? Does he say, my goodness, I've been a fool. Let me welcome you, Lord, and send all these Israelite slaves. And what, what does he say? His heart is hardened. Do you remember that? His heart's hardened. Look how Revelation 9 ends. This is so important. And if you have a Bible, you should underline Revelation 9, 20 and 21 because it summarizes the position of the world right now. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they still did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So here's what's clear. In the face of the judgments that God has brought, still humanity won't repent and worship God. You know, there's a great line in um, Milton's, John Milton's Paradise Lost, and if you've ever read that, I haven't read it, but I've listened to it on audiobook, and I remember there's a great, oh, I'm driving around and you know, drinking coffee or whatever, listening to this, there's this great line, Satan has just been thrown out of heaven, and he, along with all the angels, and he kind of, they wake up in hell, and they're looking around, not in heaven, they're looking around at hell, and there's this like great triumphant speak, it's like a, um, like a tragic hero type speak, if you, you should go and listen to it, because it, for the first time you feel like, okay, I kind of get why Satan's appealing because this is a he's a really fascinating character he stands up and he gives this wonderful conquering speech to all the fallen angels and he concludes it with these words it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven I'd rather reign here in hell than serve God in heaven this is the position of humanity given an opportunity to repent I'd rather cling to the idols better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And just like with the seven seals, suddenly these seven trumpets are interrupted, and John meets this angel who hands him, we've got the scroll again. The scroll that we haven't been able to read yet is given to John, and he's told to eat it. 
It says it'll taste sweet in your mouth, but it'll become bitter in your stomach. And this is uh, straight out of the Old Testament. Ezekiel has a message that God gives him to, uh, to the exiled Jews. And he's told to eat this scroll. And so Ezekiel does it, then he preaches to all the Jews. John takes this scroll, the lamb scroll, he eats it, but then he's given a message for every nation, not just to the Jews. Which takes us to our passage today, Revelation 11. We are in the interruption of the seven trumpets, and we're still asking this question, God, how is your kingdom going to come to the earth? What is the message of this lamb scroll that you have? How are you going to take the wrong of the world and make it right? If you've got a Bible, open up to Revelation 11, or you can pull out your, uh, if you've got the bulletin, our scripture handout for the day, we're going to follow Revelation 11, verses 1 through 7. You can look and see our passage begins with the temple. And again, one of the ways you know this is symbolic and not literal, because the New Testament is clear. We have no more need of a temple. Jesus is the final sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. So we're not literally going to rebuild a temple Rather, John is giving us a story, a parable, for how God's kingdom is going to come to the earth. And you know, throughout scripture, the temple, it's the meeting place. What does it mean? It's a meeting place between God and his people. It's where his presence dwells. And in the New Testament, Paul and Peter, they say there's no more literal temple. If you want to know where the presence of God dwells, just look for when believers get together. Whenever the believers get together, God's presence is there. It's in the assembled Christians, Jews and Gentiles, that his presence dwells. And these two figures emerge from the temple area in verse 3. They're clothed in sackcloth. And this is the dress of prophets. It's very clear. If you wear a sackcloth, you are a prophet. You know, in the ancient world, if you wanted to know uh, who a person was, you, you look to what kind of clothing were they wearing. And we do the same thing today. We have, you know, you see a firefighter, they're wearing a uniform. Police officer wears a uniform. I often wear my collar in public, you know, my, my clerical collar. And um, it, it's, it's just fascinating where you go. If you go to a hospital wearing a collar, people, they see, I see that uniform. This person is a clergy. They're kind of drawn to you. You go to a grocery store, it's like Moses parting the aisles. <laughs> People just don't want to, if you sit next to someone on a plane, it is a harrowing experience to sit next to someone wearing a collar. TSA always has a fit when I'm wearing a collar walking through because I've got candles and all sorts of things in my, my, uh, back, my uh, travel on and, and they just don't, what, what should we do with this guy? You know, don't, don't know what to do with him. These two are dressed in sackcloth. They are prophets. And in verse 4, these witnesses, they're called two lampstands. Now, you've seen that word lampstand before in Revelation. You saw it in chapter 1, you saw it in chapter 2, you saw it in chapter 3. Lampstands are John's favorite word for church. When he wants to talk about the church, he says they're like lampstands shining God's presence out into a dark world. It's a clear word that John uses to describe churches, and he says these two are lampstands. That's who they are. And they're prophesying for 1,260 days. Now, that's a real specific and stylized number, 42 months, three and a half years. It's a unit of time that denotes quality of time, not exact duration, but the quality of time. My uh, my grandparents are from Alabama. My grandmother, she's passed away now, but um, when I hadn't seen her for a while growing up, she'd say, Matthew, I haven't seen you in a month of Sundays, you know? A month of Sunday. How long is a month of Sundays? Is it 30? It's not 30 weeks of Sunday. She's just meaning it feels like I haven't seen you in a while, grandson, right? This number right here is saying for a long time, during a great ordeal, these witnesses will be prophesying. It's a quality of time. It's not an exact number. For a long time, 
they will be prophesying during a great ordeal. And in verse 5, we see they've got fire coming out of their mouths. Okay, clearly symbolic. If you didn't get that this was symbolism right here, no one I've ever met breathes fire. Some people think they do, you know, but no one ever actually is breathing fire. They are bringing a message that burns to the core. Jesus is often described in Revelation, a sword comes out of his mouth. It's similar here, bringing a message that burns to the core. And look how it infuriates the beast in verse 7. Comes up out of the abyss. He wants to trample, to attack, to hurt, to kill them, just like the Lord. But also, just like their Lord, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 11 and 12, these witnesses will be raised from the dead. They'll be vindicated. Their message is truth after all. And this is crucial. It's just outside of the passage you have. Verse 13, something happens. It says this. At that very hour, there's a severe earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Finally, people begin to repent of their sins. At the message of the witnesses, at their death, at their resurrection, then humanity begins to repent. So who are these two witnesses? Well, in light of all this, it's symbolic, it's a parable, prophetic speech, this, this scroll with Jesus' plan to bring his kingdom to the world, two lampstands speaking against opposition until the seventh trumpet and Jesus returns, these two, these two witnesses represent the call of the church. They represent the one holy, Catholic, apostolic church spanning all ages, triumphant through history. It is the call, the vocation, if you will, of the church to speak and to proclaim the gospel to the world. These two figures represent every local church that ever assembles, every believer that ever goes into the world speaking the gospel. They represent you and me. They represent this assembly together is who they are. In short little parable spanning just 10 verses, John tells us the witnessing church does something that the judgments cannot do. Humanity only responds and worships God after the message of the witnesses, after their opposition, after their death, their own seeming defeat and God's vindication. And you can hear Pastor John just saying to the seven churches, in the midst of your difficult situation, like in the midst of what you're going through right now, in the midst of your situation, know that I'm aware of it as your pastor. Know that Jesus is aware of it, but you still have a task. You are still called to go to the dark corners of the world and to proclaim the message of the slain lamb who defeated these powers. You are called to proclaim a message that God Almighty has stepped down into the world and he has taken on the powers of sin. He has surrendered his life on a cross, dying for our sins. He has gone into hell and there in hell rescued all, opened the gates of hell, leading them triumphantly out that all who have faith in Jesus this slain lamb might now join and follow after him. You, church, no matter where you are and what is going on, that's your vocation. Proclaim that to the world and see what happens. You will face opposition, and God will vindicate you in the end. I love how Tim Mackey of the Bible Project captures this moment. So beautiful. He says, a message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. Remember the army, you're not carrying swords and spears, but self-giving acts of love, laying your life down, following the Lamb. That's your weapon. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, 
not overpowering them, not triumphing by force, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that brings the nations to repentance. These witnesses, they're called martyria. You're called martyria, martyrs. Remember I said there's two words in Revelation that John wants to use to describe Christians, conquerors and witnesses. We looked at conquerors, the Nikon, a couple of weeks ago. Today we're looking at witnesses, the martyria. And that word martyria, it originally means a legal witness. Like when you've got a trial going on and you need to call, we want to call someone to the stand. We want to call a martyria. We want to call someone who's going to say, I've seen what happened. And I can give an honest account of that. That's what a martyria is. It takes on this connotation of a martyr because someone who um, tells what they've seen even to the point of death. It's one of John's favorite ways to describe his flock. He wants them to know you're conquerors. You will overcome evil as you follow the lamb with acts of love and your witnesses speaking the truth to the world that the slain lamb has overcome the evil of the world and the evil of our hearts. And he wants them to know there will always be a cost to following Jesus. You know, I've been really careful actually throughout this whole series not to, uh, not to paint too wide a picture of the persecution going on in Rome at this time. Um, it's not like Christians were being picked off the side of the street and then being thrown into the arena. This is 90 AD, and um, there will be more persecutions that follow. The worst will be between about 300 and 310 AD. Um, but Christians are being persecuted in different measure, uh, to be sure. And most of them are facing some sort of social pressure. When they say no to the temples in their town, uh, their personal income is taking a hit. Because they're being, uh, they're, by their own self-choice, they're kicking themselves out of the guilds that would be associated with the temples. Um, it means that their upward career mobility is probably ended at this point in their life. Because they can't host dinners where they would be connecting and uh, kind of like networking. Uh, it's the networking of the ancient world. Their retirement plan is basically shot in following Jesus. And so following Jesus for them is costing them finances. And it's costing them friends. Christians are looking at the, or not Christians, the, the world is looking at them askew. What's this family doing? They're kind of weird. They don't go to the temple. They don't do the things we do. They look different than others in society. Why don't they worship with us? And in fact, one person, Antipas, has actually been killed. So I don't want to over-dramatize Revelation, but I do want to be clear. There is social opposition, and there is at least one time uh, some physical violence that's happened. There's always a cost in proclaiming the gospel. And this is still true today. There's an organization called Open Doors, and it's a worldwide organization that tracks where Christians are facing persecution, particularly in the form of harassment, intolerance, and outright violence. It's worth looking at, worth going to, um, just to, to kind of get a picture, a global picture of what's going on. And um, here's a few stats. These are actually from the past year. Past year, over 360 million Christians have experienced a high level of persecution, you know, intimidation, discrimination uh, in their areas. Nearly 6,000 Christians have become martyrs, have uh, given their life for the sake of their faith. Just over 5,000 churches and other church buildings have been attacked, and almost 5,000 believers have been, in the past year, detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. There's always a cost following Jesus, and still, church, your witness, what you're called to be, to proclaim to the dark corners of the world, there is a slain lamb who has conquered evil. 
There are a number of missionaries the church is sending out all over the world. And they'll face different levels of opposition. In fact, this Thursday, we have a unique opportunity as our mission team is hosting a dinner um, with global Anglican missionaries. And none of them actually are missionaries from America. And there's Chilean missionary who's in India. There's the Brazilian, one of the Brazilian bishops will be coming in, missionaries from Honduras. You can come and eat dinner uh, on a Thursday night um, and kind of hear what is God doing worldwide. Um, so more information about that on our website. But again, John's point is clear. It is the local church. We are called to proclaim this message of the slain lamb for the world. And there will always be opposition. Now, I said I'm interpreting Revelation as a pastor. And so is there a word here for us today? And I think that there is. Most of us in this room will not face violence for our faith. So how do we read this passage? What do we do with Revelation 11? And again, I want to suggest that following the slain lamb in word and deed, it will be costly no matter who you are, no matter where you are. The Christians are called to be in the public forum, in the universities, in government, policy-making, speaking, articulating, winsomely advocating for this message of the Lamb and the implications of following Him. And again, no matter how kind you are, no matter how merciful, no matter how gospel-centered, there will always be opposition to this. I mean, can you imagine, just kind of imagine this with me. What if you got up in like the center of a public forum And every week just said, I'm just going to proclaim God's truth, following God and the implications of that. Like, how might you be received if you did that? Can you imagine, you know, maybe standing up at a free speech area or something like that and just, I'm just going to speak out. Here's what it means. Here's the slain lamb and here's his vision of how, what he wants for every single human, like how you would be treated in that moment. I can imagine trying to speak this out, and you would speak about God wants humans to flourish, and so you'd talk about visions for marriages and for adoptions and fostering. You would speak against abortion, but you would emphasize care for both the unborn and women in crisis pregnancies. You'd speak about caring for the aging and against physician-assisted suicide, the dignity of every person from natural birth through natural death. Because of the image of God on every person, you'd speak against capital punishment, And against the hyper-militarization of society, you'd speak against nuclear weapons in the kingdom vision and against gun violence. You'd speak in favor of the poor, the sick, the marginalized, and the disabled. You'd speak against interpersonal racism. And you'd speak against reckoning the ongoing effects of racism over the past 400 years in this country and classism. And notice what I've done. I've gone left and right across our political spectrum Right In God's kingdom, he equally critiques all across political aisle. That's appropriate and right. And these are themes that happen when you follow, when you speak the truth of the slain lamb who's truly on the throne. What would happen if you spoke like, if you got up and spoke like that? Would you be honored? Would they say, you know what, finally, someone with some sense has gotten up and has said something, you wouldn't be honored. You'd be spoken against. There would be outlash, there, there would be backlash against you. And look, I'm not saying... Please do not hear me saying this, Christ Church. Get on social media and say what I just said. That is not the answer to what I'm, I'm trying to say right now. But there will always be a cost to speaking the truth. And the two stances Christians often take, we often either go into our own little um, enclave, little safety corner, um, little ghetto, uh, and just kind of retreat from the world. Or we think we have to demand that everyone agree with our exact viewpoint. 
No sense of mercy, no sense of kindness, no sense of I'll be with you even if you disagree with me. And this slain lamb, this witnessing that you're called to is to be in the dark places of the world, to not be afraid to accept whatever consequences come, to not give up loving people. You are called to be there with them. I've been, um, let me just, actually let me suggest it this way. Wherever God has you right now, this is the message for you. Wherever God has you right now, your work, your family, your friendships, where you live, um, he has you there as an ambassador of the slain lamb. And you might face a cost for following Jesus. Cost of friendship, financial cost. Perhaps your cost might even just be patience while you continue to show up and love a friend time and time again. You know, if you have someone in your life struggling deeply with a mental illness or an addiction, questioning their own physical body, you do not need to give them endless lectures. You need to give them endless love in your presence. You need to show up. And if, I don't know if you've ever tried to love sinful humans before, but it is costly. <laughs> it is really hard to show up time and time again with people who let you down. Because frankly, we all let one another down all the time. And that itself is the gospel. No matter what it seems like, I will continue to faithfully, boldly, consistently, with love, grace, kindness, the disposition of Jesus, proclaim there is someone who has taken on the evil of the world, and he's done something about it, and it started in my own life, and he's come and he's entered my life. You proclaim that gospel wherever you are. That's the message for us today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.